Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm Amy Morin, the editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind. I'm also a psychotherapist and a best-selling author of four books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a mentally strong person whose story and mental strength tips can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite platform so you can get mental strength tips delivered to you every single week. And the fun part is we record our show from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive in today's episode. Do you have trouble falling asleep? Do you feel tired no matter how much sleep you get? Do you struggle to stay asleep? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. My guest today is sleep expert, Dr. Chris Winter. He's a neurologist, sleep researcher, and author. One of the things he researches is the effect that travel has on Major League Baseball teams. He discovered that the sleepiness of baseball players not only affects their performance, but also predicts the longevity of their careers. He's written several books on sleep, including The Sleep Solution and The Rested Child. And today he's sharing tips that can help us all sleep just a little bit better. Make sure to stick around until the end of the show for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Winter's mental strength building strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Chris Winter on how better sleep can help you grow mentally stronger. Chris Winter, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. I appreciate the, the offer. So I'm excited to talk to you for many reasons. Obviously, on Instagram, I recently learned that you work with uh, athletes. It wasn't <laughs> something I knew a lot about, but I was at a Red Sox-Tampa Bay game, posted it on Instagram, and you quickly said, hey, I help the Red Sox learn how to sleep when they're on the road. I do a little bit. Unfortunately, I guess I didn't do my job good enough. Um, but yes, I, I don't I do not do a lot of communication about that. Um, but I, I do enjoy that part of my job. I work with probably th- about 30 professional sports organizations just to give them insight and clarity in terms of you know, individual sleep issues that pop up within their organizations, but also as a, as a team or as a, a, a bigger unit, how they can travel and, and sort of do things organizationally or institutionally to, to preserve and improve their sleep and performance. So I'm a speaker, so I travel a lot for speaking engagements. I don't have to perform like an athlete, but I do sometimes take those late night flights to get up early. I got to be on stage for a tech check and then perform, even if it's a 45 minute talk. What are your tips for traveling when you are sleeping in a hotel, you're traveling in planes and you're in a different time zone, all of those things that make it hard sometimes to, to be on our A game? Yeah. And so I'm not a huge sports fan, actually. I I like working with athletes just because of what you said, that if we can do things to improve their sleep to some degree and then improve their performance, we can measure that. You know, we can look at the newspaper or pull up an ESPN app or something and figure out if our team is getting more hits or or not. So I, I think that we all have to perform. So the question or the answer to your question is, is complicated. It, it starts with, are you able to control your travel? And usually when people sort of get, off, get started with talking and, and having to keep a clinic, but also do some speaking engagements, they may be taking a lot of early morning flights or red eyes. 
as time progresses, maybe they can command more money. They can change that a little bit and demand a first-class seat that fully reclines when they fly to the West Coast or an extra day once they've gotten there to kind of acclimate. Um, we deal that with that a, a lot with players in terms of they'll have a preseason game or two in Spain. And when they're in Spain, they they have to do something then come back. And the team might say to me, we have two obliga- ob- obligatory games we have to play in Madrid. We don't care how we do in them. We just want to get there and get back with the least disruption to our schedule. So the first question in terms of people who travel for work is, are you trying to get to a place and then get back from that place without ever acclimating to it? Or do you need to acclimate to that new time zone to be your best? In other words, if you're an Olympic swimmer and you're flying to Beijing and it's all about that time trial that you're going to swim at 7 a.m. Beijing time and the final you swim at 6 p.m., then we need to do things that acclimate that individual to that environment. If it's, nah, I'm just going to fly over, give a 30-minute talk and come back, you know, I don't need to be acclimated to Beijing time. I just need to be able to give a talk and come back. Then we can kind of make that trip disappear to some extent as in terms of your brain. So those are the kinds of questions that we ask. And then, you know, what do you have control over? Can you not take the first flight out at 4.30 in the morning, which means you've got to get up at, you know, three o'clock in your hotel room? Could you actually wake up and have a nice breakfast, get a little, you know, movement in and then catch a 9 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. flight. You know, those kinds of things tend to make travel a little bit easier on people as they get older. All good stuff. And for those of us mere mortals that don't have to play uh, perform in an athletic competition, what would you say are some of the biggest barriers to sleep for the average person these days? Yeah, I mean, I think for kids, it's probably electronics and school. I think for adults, it's electronics family and work. Um, I think most people want to sleep. I think most people to some extent like sleeping and want to move towards it. It's just, I think that as times become more stressful and difficult, um, economic issues for people are quite high and, and, and staggering in some cases, then you tend to try to work yourself out of a problem with option often comes at the sacrifice of sleep. So, you know, I often have patients in my clinic who are working two jobs and they're not getting a sufficient amount of sleep and having problems because of it. Maybe sometimes very bad problems like car accidents and things of that nature, falling asleep at work and getting in trouble for that. So the conversation is typically, as you've taken me through your 24-hour schedule, this schedule you're giving me only seems to be allotting about three to five hours for sleep at night. That's not enough which can sometimes come to an uncomfortable sort of impasse of, well, this is what I need to do to pay my rent, or I'm a law clerk and this is what goes along with the job, or um, I am a youngster at the United States Naval Academy who swims and I've I've got to swim, I've got to do my chemistry and calculus homework, I've got all my military responsibilities, that leaves me about four hours of sleep at night. So a lot of times we're up against sort of institutional, organizational problems. Medical school is another great one where I can sit and think about it all day. It doesn't change sort of unmovable facts. I had a meeting one time with the NCAA about sleep in college athletes. And I went into it thinking, well, I work with all these professional sports organizations. I'm going to tell them how to fix their problem. And after about an hour of listening to what the average Division I collegiate swimmer and football player go through, 
unless I can figure out a way to magically make hours appear in a day, I've got nothing because what you're asking of your employee or your student or your whatever is completely opposed to an individual getting the right amount of sleep. So that's when prioritization starts to come into play and it's tough to prioritize sleep over income. It is. And I'm in a fortunate place in my life where I get plenty of sleep. I don't have any trouble sleeping, but that wasn't always the case. In college, I worked an overnight job at a homeless shelter and I worked over the overnight shift on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So I worked 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. twice a week. And it was spread out just enough that you just never really got in the pattern of sleeping ever, really. <laughs> and I can say from firsthand experience of not sleeping just two nights a week, my mental health suffered. I felt like I was forgetful. I couldn't remember things. And uh, in fact, I got lost driving to work one night. <laughs> I remember driving past the exit thinking, okay, this is a problem. And I, and I think that we sort of as a society rely on that. Right. Like we give all the terrible shifts to the young nurses. We give all the terrible hours to the grad students and just assume that you pay your dues and then you move out of that situation because you're, but unfortunately a lot of people never do or they can't. That's, that's the, the nature of their work. And I don't know how we're going to reconcile that when we know that that's not only incredibly unhealthy, just like you illustrated, but may cause cancer. It definitely shortens people's lives. And so, you know, I think in one of my books, I, I sort of likened it to asbestos. It's sort of like asbestos was great until they figured out it caused cancer. And I'm sure at some point, a bunch of people were sitting around thinking, well, yeah, but we can't just pull it out of all the buildings. That would be imp virtually impossible. Yes, that's exactly what you need to do. I know it's going to create a lot of work and problems, but we have to do it because it's deadly. And I think that at some point in the future, we will look back at some of these things that you and I did and think, I can't believe they used to make people work overnight shifts and doing all this bad stuff when we knew it shortened people's lives. But I don't have the solution for that, I don't think. You know, and as a therapist, I know that the vast majority of people come into my office complaining about sleep issues. In fact, I was, before we got on this call, I was trying to think of what's the percentage of people who ever said, no, I sleep fine. Maybe 5% of people yeah, who came no, no. into my office. Absolutely. I think it's something like, well, 66% of children before they head to college will have some sort of diagnosable sleep disorder or problem. That's by just, if we were just cutting everybody off at college. If you start to add in, you know, adults and kids and work and things of that nature, it's like I told somebody, if I met somebody at a dinner party said, you know what, I'm 43 years old and have never had a bad night of sleep in my life, I would be shocked. I mean, it never happened. So I think that to some degree, at least temporary sleep problems are bordering on ubiquitous in our population. So what are some of the solutions for people who say, okay, I'm struggling with sleep? Because I had so many people that would come into my office and say, well, I have anxiety, so then I can't sleep. But because I can't sleep, it increases my anxiety or it leads to depression. It's a cycle that's really hard to break. How do we break those cycles? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, there's a couple answers. I mean, no, answer number one is good education. There's no such thing as an inability to sleep. So that's a really big tool or card that you can play as a professional when somebody says, when I get anxious, I can't sleep. When I can't sleep, I get anxious. You can say, well, let's stop right there. There's no such thing as an inability to sleep. It does not exist in nature. 
Um, and people will say, well, well, sure it does, because I've got a lot of friends who have insomnia. And then you can sort of get into the idea of what is insomnia, because most people would define it as an inability to sleep. It's not. It's a person who's not sleeping when and how they've decided they want to. That's part A. And then part B is you have to have a negative emotional response to part A. So if I meet somebody who says it takes them two hours to fall asleep, my first question is, how do you feel about that? If the answer is, oh, I don't mind. I like being in bed awake because personally I do. I like being in bed awake. I think it's a wonderful place to be. Then you don't really have insomnia, even though it's taking you two hours to fall asleep because you don't have that negative emotional response. And that response is what finishes the loop. Just like you said, can't sleep, anxious about it, which really makes me not be able to sleep, which really makes me even more anxious. And then you kind of spiral out of control. I think education is really important for people to understand that your sleep may not be perfect, but nobody out there is in danger of not taking a pill and therefore not being able to sleep. Number two, I think we have to look at the fact that a lot of these problems with our sleep start when we're very young. So I see both adults and kids in my clinic and we just deal with sleep problems. And it's amazing to me how many individuals you can trace the root of their sleep problem way, way back to like middle school, high school. You know, I used to have trouble falling asleep. And if my dad caught me in bed with a comic book and a flashlight, he would punish me. And so I got really anxious about not being able to fall asleep when I wanted to. So a lot of times parents feel like they're doing the right thing for their kids, you know, trying to impress upon them that sleep's important. If you don't get enough sleep, you won't make the basketball team or you'll fail your algebra test. But at the same time, we're sort of setting people up for this kind of unusual performance anxiety, which for a lot of people, sleep problems are. I think the other thing that we have to consider is that there are people out there who are trained to help you with your knee pain. If you can't ice it and make it go away or take some ibuprofen or get a splint for it, you might eventually go see an orthopedic surgeon and she might tell you, oh yeah, well, you've got a small ligament tear or you know, a ruptured you know, a cart- cartilage or something. And so, but a lot of people don't think that way when it comes to their sleep, that there are actually people out there professionally ready to kind of give, give you help and assistance with that problem. So I think it's sort of, educate yourself, educate yourself if you're a parent and and raising kids. And if you're really struggling and feel like it's kind of been going on and you can't get any traction in terms of solution, seek out a professional. That's that's kind of what we do. Yeah. I guess a couple of things about what you said. One thing that really stuck out to me from your book was you talked about how if you can't sleep, you just remind yourself at least you're resting and that that's okay to go to bed to rest, not necessarily be completely out and sleeping. So that takes a lot of the pressure off to know if I'm going to go to bed, if I lay there awake for two hours, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, because if you you ask me right now to rest, I can do it. I mean, resting, generally speaking, is under our immediate and total control. I'll put my feet up on this desk. I'll close my eyes, recline a little bit there. I'm resting. Sleep is not entirely like that. You know, somebody can't just sleep on command in a lot of cases. And that's the reason why I titled my new book, The Rested Child Instead of the Slept Child, because I do think that we put way too much importance on unconsciousness. I mean, if you ask people, you know, a hundred people, what's a good night of sleep? Or if somebody says, I've always been a bad sleeper, chances are they're, they're making that value determination based upon how quickly they achieve unconsciousness when they go to bed, which to me is kind of like saying, I'm a bad eater because it takes me more than five minutes to finish my dinner. I don't think speed with which you eat your food is a great metric for good nutrition or good eating. 
similarly, I don't think the speed with which we fall asleep or become unconscious is the best indicator for good sleep. I think it's more about how refreshed do you feel the next day? And we do have the capacity to rest ourselves to feeling quite good. I mean, if somebody is feeling tired during the day, I always tell people, you know, take a nap if you need to. And somebody might say, well, I can't nap. I've tried all, all my life and every time I lay down, I can never fall asleep. Well, stop measuring your success by whether you fall asleep or not. Just if you feel tired, once you go stretch out on a couch or close your eyes in a break room for 15 minutes. And then when you're done, let's see how you feel afterwards, even if you never actually fell asleep. It's amazing how refreshed somebody can feel after a period of good rest or good meditation. And But we, we, we're not really taught to value that. But once you start to believe in that, you also start to believe in the fact that I've got control over that. So if I'm having a difficult day, I can say, you know what, I'm going to take half my lunch break and go lay down and close my eyes. I don't care if I fall asleep or not because I know from personal experience, just with myself, that after 30 minutes of lying in a quiet room with a blanket over my body, listening to a noise machine, even if I don't fall asleep, when that one o'clock patient comes and I've sat there for 30 minutes, I feel great. I mean, I feel really ready to go and will often fall asleep because now I'm not trying to do it anymore. I like that. That takes a lot of the pressure off. Absolutely. And the second thing that you were just talking about was about how we should get help if we have trouble sleeping. I know a lot of people are really resistant to, say, doing a sleep study for some reason. The idea of going and sleeping in a lab just seems like it's too much, too scary, too big of a problem. So a lot of people won't. Maybe, yeah. Right? But I know you're also not a fan of these home sleep studies that you can do now and order a test kit. They're, They're okay. I mean, so number one, just realize when you go to see a sleep specialist, it's not guaranteed that you need a study. I mean, number one, it may not be indicated or necessary. Number two, it may be, but you could still see a professional and say, you know what, I understand you want me to have a sleep study, but I don't want to do that at this point either because I don't want to, I can't afford it. So there should be a dialogue there. I've never told anybody you must do anything. I might say, you know, given what you're describing, it sounds like you might have sleep apnea. And I think a sleep study would be appropriate. How do you feel about that? If a patient says, sleeping away from my partner is terrifying, I could never do it. Or I don't think my seven-year-old would be a good candidate because I think he would absolutely freak out in that situation. Then we that's our job to listen to a patient and their specific situation. In terms of home studies, I like them. Actually, I think home studies are a wonderful tool for people with specific problems in that if you have, let's say you have sleep apnea or symptoms that would relate themselves to sleep apnea, we could do an in-lab study that's probably going to cost your insurance $3,000 or if you don't have insurance, cost you $3,000. Or we could do a home study that's going to run somewhere around $300 and probably be very covered by your insurance. I, I think the in-lab study is completely unnecessary for a you know 300-pound truck driver who snores, stops breathing at night, and falls asleep at stoplights. I, you, know, you could argue, do you even need the home study? Like his wife's sitting there saying, oh my God, doctor, when you have no idea, he'll stop breathing for 20 seconds. Here, I recorded it with my phone. You should listen to it. Like At that point, the home study is almost a formality. Like I believe you. He's got sleep apnea, but a lot of times insurances will require that 
to initiate a treatment. But generally speaking, those things are quite covered. So the home studies do play a great role in terms of making it much easier for patients to get the study. Plus, nobody wants to do an in-lab study. So now somebody could come in, get diagnosed with sleep apnea with a home study, never step foot in a sleep lab, and actually get an auto CPAP to treat it. Again, never get stepping foot in a sleep lab. So we can treat people much easier than we ever have before at much lower cost and a lot less stress to the patient. But just keep in mind, just seeing a sleep specialist does not necessarily mean you have to have a sleep study. So what do you do then? If somebody comes in and they say to you, I'm exhausted all the time, I don't know what my problem is, maybe they don't want a sleep study. What would you do with somebody like that? Well, so for somebody like that, the first thing we want to do is define exhausted because that's really important because when a lot of, when people feel low energy, fatigue, worn out during the day, there's a natural tendency for that person to say, therefore, it's because something's wrong with my sleep. And in my my new book, I, I talk about the differences between sleep and fatigue and I actually made a list for every letter of the alphabet of a disorder that can cause you to be fatigued that has nothing to do with your sleep. So for a lot of people, they get stuck in this cycle of, I feel exhausted during the day. And so I uh, have been going to bed early. I'm wearing this thing on my wrist and nothing seems to be helping, right? Because it's not related to your sleep. It's because you have a B12 deficiency or you're actually anemic. So figuring out when somebody says they're exhausted, are you talking more about being fatigued, low energy level, low motivation, literally cannot get off the couch to fold a load of laundry because you're so just spent, you know, from an energy currency perspective? Or are you saying, no, 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 I'm not that. I just can't stay awake to do anything. Like when I sit down in my meeting, I fall asleep. I was talking to a nurse a couple of days ago who said during her sign out with another nurse, she was leaving, the new nurse was coming on. She kept nodding off as the going off nurse was telling her what to expect in her upcoming shift. And the nurse had to keep reaching over and touching her saying, hey, are you okay? You keep falling asleep and you're coming on for your shift, not going off. So, so to me, that's a great first step. And we, there's a tool in the book, the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. You can look that up and not even buy the book. In terms of how driven are you to sleep? Like if you were in a car parked at a stoplight or you had to read a book for an assignment or you were talking to somebody or sitting quietly after lunch, that's a great tool to figure out when you say you feel tired are you talking more about an excessive sleepiness or an excessive fatigue? Because if it's sleepiness, there's only really two things that cause that, an inadequate amount of sleep. You're going to bed at midnight, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to work out and start your day, and you're only getting four hours of sleep. That's going to cause somebody to be excessively sleepy. Or, no, 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 I go to bed after Wheel of Fortune and sleep until the next morning and still can barely stay awake to get my job done. Well, that's not an inadequate sleep quantity. That's probably pointing more towards a problematic sleep quality. And that's what we're you know, here to figure out. You, there's 88 diagnosable sleep disorders. Could you have one of those that's affecting that? And then the flip side are the people who struggle to even fall asleep. So they're saying, I get in bed, it takes me three hours to fall asleep. That's sort of a different subset, that insomnia group. And we do a lot of work with those individuals too to help them understand more about their sleep and how to get out from under that feeling as well too. 
And interestingly, in your book, one of the things you talk about is PTSD and this issue of paradoxical insomnia. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Sure. Well, there's some people, and I, I tend to subscribe to it, that sort of look at, at insomnia, particularly when it's been around for a long time. You know, as the person who's chronically had trouble falling asleep, my guess is a therapist, you would see a lot of them because they really go hand in hand with anxiety, that some people actually think about insomnia as a sort of form of PTSD. I do. You know, I always tell patients, look, I need you to be at least neutral about falling asleep. Ideally, I'd like you to be excited about it. I've had a difficult day today, Amy, and I'm excited to go to bed tonight. It's been a long one. So what I don't want is there to be a sense of dread, apprehension, fear, loathing about going to sleep. And it's very easy for some people to get to that place. So you know, I might walk into a convenience store and feel nothing about it, or maybe I'm a little excited to get a chocolate milk and be on my way. If you had had a bad, you know, been held at gunpoint at that convenience store, had a similar episode, walking into that store might be triggering all kinds of emotions that an average person wouldn't feel. And so for a lot of the time when we're dealing with patients with sleep problems, we're dealing with that kind of emotion that you're taking into that situation. And a lot of people describe that as a PTSD. And when your sleep and your movement towards going to bed is charged with that kind of anxiety and emotion, it can start to affect an inab- your ability to actually perceive your sleep. So one of the things that's very troublesome about treating sleep problems is on a daily basis, we see people who say, I'm lucky if I get two hours of sleep a night, which we know is physiologically impossible. So when somebody says, well, that's what happens to me. I go to bed. I sit there for six to seven hours, finally fall asleep at five o'clock and have to be up at seven. Those are my two hours. If I'm lucky, a lot of nights I don't sleep at all. So what they're saying is for you know, from 10 to seven, they're just awake all night long there's a very good chance that they're not. That might be their perception. They're not lying to us, but that's what they feel. And that's where the, you know, the R rings and the Fitbits and the jawbones and the withing bands and the devices that go into your bed and the things that go on your head. I was just trying this one out last night. It's a little, little headband you wear. It measures your brain activity and calculates your sleep. That's where those things can be quite helpful. Even if they're not perfectly accurate in determining REM sleep and deep sleep, when that individual wakes up and says, I didn't sleep last night or I slept an hour, but their device says seven hours and 13 minutes, which is what their partner's saying, those devices have a strong power, almost more than I do, to help somebody be like, well, Maybe I am sleeping more than I thought I thought I was, and that can be really uplifting and empowering, you know, and really take that stress out of. Well, I might not be sleeping well, but at least I can get outside of this bucket of I need help sleeping because I can't because this device is telling me over the last month I've averaged six hours and forty four minutes of sleep. That's not the same as not sleeping. So, you know, th- that's where you often have to really establish that relationship and trust with the patient so that they understand that sometimes the disorder that they have is partly due to an inability to actually feel their sleep. And we've all experienced it. I used to, you know, like on Christmas Eve, I never thought I slept the night before Santa came. You know, if you walked in and said, okay, before you go out there to see what he brought, if he brought anything at all, how much do you think you slept? I think there are many nights when I was a kid, I would say, 
30 minutes. I've, I've literally been up all night. And I, I'm sure because I've looked at the clock all night long. When in fact, if you had a camera watching me that night, you'd see, no, he slept quite a bit. But the anxiety of some magical elf from the North Pole coming has actually impaired my ability to feel that sleep. And that's an interesting thing to kind of deal with. That is interesting. And I know that happens to me on a day when I have to get up at three o'clock in the yeah. morning to jump on an airplane. I'm Absolutely. always convinced. I don't think I, I fell never, asleep I at never all. really <laughs> fell asleep. And that's right. what's fun is when you get those devices and you have a lot of fun with it and probably when you do your talks and meet with people is you have to call it when you wake up. Okay, alarm goes off at three. You got in bed at 10 because the dinner you were at last night went long. So you're thinking, I don't know. I feel like I got an hour of sleep. Now look at your watch or your app and see what it's says. And it's really interesting to see how congruent your impression is with what the device says, both in a stressful situation like catching a flight and in your day-to-day. It's really interesting to me. That is interesting. Okay. For people who say, all right, I have some trouble sleeping. What are some little changes that they could maybe try, things that they could do a little bit differently to try to improve their sleep? So I think that if, if the question is, look, I sleep fine, I'm just pretty tired during the day, you know, the obvious thing is, are you getting enough? And that's a tough question to answer without having insight in terms of quality of sleep, meaning that if somebody says to me, I need 10 hours of sleep every night, it could be because that's genetically what you need. So just keep in mind, eight hours of sleep a night is the middle of the bell curve. There are people who need more, people who need less. But what we want to be careful of is somebody who needs 10 hours because the quality of their sleep is poor. Therefore, they're, they're making up for the poor quality with more quantity. So I think that you're just paying attention to things like alcohol, making your room a little bit cooler, making it dark. We did an experiment a few months ago with precision nutrition clients and we had them, you know, for two weeks, you know, drink alcohol before they went to bed at night or whatever alcohol they were using. And then for two weeks, don't have no alcohol in the evening and see how it affects you. What was interesting was when we did that, I thought alcohol would surely be the thing that affected people's sleep the most. It actually turned out to be temperature. So another thing you could do is say, well, we keep the thermostat at, you know, 72. You know, for two weeks, drop the thermostat by five degrees. At the end of the two weeks, you ask yourself the question, did that improve the quality of my sleep or not? Exercising, meditation, you know, uh, dealing with your partner's sleep problem, which is often a really big problem for patients is that their sleep's good and they notice it when they go out of town to give the lecture. But when they come back home and start sharing the bed with the guy who kicks or the woman who snores, it can be a problem there as well too. So I think this really paying attention to sleep amount and sleep environment, all the sleep hygiene things we talk about. And then if you're still feeling like, look, I do everything perfectly, perfect mattress, perfect exercise. My diet is impeccable. I meditate every day and still don't feel like my sleep quality is where it needs to be. I would let yourself off the hook. You've done what you can do. Probably time to see a sleep specialist. Okay. And then last question for you about our electronics. You said our electronics are often the culprit of why we don't sleep as well. What's your advice about what we should be doing? Most of us sleep with our phones next to our heads at night, truth be told, and we scroll through it before we go to bed and it's the first thing we do when we wake up or we watch TV in bed. What's your advice about what we should actually be doing? So my advice would be, I I think that electronics are fine. I mean, I certainly have mine close by and two different screens and 
you know, stuff for my clinic. It's all here, you know, whatever. It's fine. I just think there needs to be a time and a place for it, um, you know, to kind of diversify yourself. You know, how much time do you spend on electronics versus social interactions with others and playing the guitar like you used to and exercising? I think that electronics also need to sleep in the kitchen, you know, be on it if you need to be. But I think there should be a time where we turn them off and plug them up and then have some time away from them. So I don't think that it necessarily needs to be in your bedroom. And I think if you're a parent, it's important to model that behavior. Now, if you're on call and people call you, then I think it's you know fine, have your phone in your bedroom. But maybe on the nights when you're not on call, really make sure that, that, that it's somewhere else. And then if you need to check your phone or you're really concerned, you heard it beep and you really need to figure out what it was, I can tell you it was nothing important. It was a Bed Bath & Beyond coupon. But if you really need to check it out, check it out. Just do it somewhere outside of your bedroom. You know, I just think that we need to kind of create times for ourselves when we're away from those things and really importantly need to model it for our kids because I think to some degree kids, if they were left to their own devices, would just literally be on their phone 24 hours a day if they could do it. I think so too. I think that's wonderful advice for all of us. Great reminders that we probably don't need to check our email at 2 a.m., most of us anyway. So thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate the time. I hope everybody goes out and gets copies of your books to help themselves and their kids sleep much better. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Dr. Winter's strategies that I really liked and using them might help you sleep better too. Number one, accept it when you can't sleep and consider it helpful to rest. Dr. Winter says there will be times when you aren't able to fall asleep or stay asleep, and that's okay. Just allow your brain and your body a chance to rest. He says it isn't necessarily the fact that we aren't sleeping that's tough on us. It's our response to not sleeping. When we get anxious that we haven't fallen asleep yet, we tend to keep ourselves awake even longer. So I like the idea of just giving yourself permission to rest. There are a lot of other experts out there who say if you can't sleep after 15 minutes, you should get back up. So you don't start to associate being in bed with feeling anxious and not sleeping. But I like Dr. Winter's suggestion. Just work on not being anxious and associate being in bed with calm rest, even if you aren't sleeping. Simply telling yourself, at least I'm resting, might help quiet all those anxious thoughts about how tired you're going to feel tomorrow or how frustrated you feel that you can't fall asleep. Number two, create a healthy sleep environment. Dr. Winter talks about how a lot of little things can add up to create a big problem with sleeping. Everything from how messy your room is to how warm it is makes a difference. Take a look at how you can change your environment to create an optimal space to sleep. You'll sleep much better in a dark, cool space that's clean, well-organized, and quiet than you will in a chaotic space that's too warm. You might experiment with different strategies in your environment, like dropping the temperature a few degrees. I like that Dr. Winter is also a fan of apps that can give you feedback on how much you're sleeping. He says we often underestimate how much we've really slept, and an app can give us realistic feedback on how we're doing. Number three, don't sleep with your phone in your room. Dr. Winter says sleeping with a phone in the room can certainly interrupt our sleep habits. You've probably heard that before, that sleeping with your phone in your room isn't a good idea, yet most of us do it anyway. 
We tend to use our phones to entertain ourselves right before we go to sleep, which isn't a good idea. And we use our phones as alarm clocks to wake ourselves up in the morning for the sake of convenience. But if you're serious about wanting to sleep better, put your phone in another room. It's a great place to start. If the thought of putting your phone in another room, though, sounds too anxiety-provoking, at least put it on the other side of the room so you'll be less likely to scroll through social media when you wake up at 2 a.m. There's a lot of research on how not sleeping with your phone in your room can help you sleep better, as well as how it can reduce your anxiety. One study that sticks out in my mind talked about how Everyone, as part of an experiment, put their phone in a different room. And when the experiment was over, almost everyone decided to keep it up because they felt so much better and they slept so much better. So maybe try it as an experiment in your own life. Put the phone in another room for a few nights and see if you sleep better and you feel less anxious. So those are three of Dr. Winter's tips that I highly recommend. Accept it when you can't sleep and remind yourself it's okay to just rest. Modify your sleep environment and don't sleep with your phone in your room. If you want more of Dr. Winter's tips, pick up a copy of his book, The Sleep Solution. And if you're looking for help getting your kids to sleep better, check out his newest book, The Rested Child. Both are filled with great tips that can help you or your kids sleep much better. If you know someone who could benefit from hearing this message, share it with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And if you like this show, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite platform. Do you want free access to my online mental strength course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises that will help you reach your greatest potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot of your review and email it to us. Our address is podcast at verywell.com. We'll reply with your all-access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who says he hasn't slept in seven days, Nick Valentine. Do you want to learn more strategies for building mental strength? Check out my international best-selling books and discover how to grow mentally stronger. 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do has sold more than a million copies and been translated into more than 40 languages. My other books include 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, and 13 Things Strong Kids Do. And stay tuned. Book number five is coming to a bookstore near you in 2023.